You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Oh, I'm just wild. Hi, I'm Robert Schneider, and welcome to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast, a companion piece to the Routledge Press publication, 50 Key Stage Musicals, which is available for purchase by going to routledge.com or clicking the link below in today's show description. Today's episode focuses on Chapter 4, the 1921 production of Shuffle Along, and with us today is the author of that chapter, Professor Jarrell L. Henderson of Chicago State University, Southside, Chicago. Professor Henderson is a director and puppeteer. His shadow play, Three American Myths, a riff in shadow and light in three rhythmic movements, was a finalist for the 2019 Jim Henson Foundation grant. As a director, he has been nominated for the Jeff Award. Award and the Barrymore Award. And as an assistant director, Professor Henderson has worked with the Goodman Theater, Steppenwolf Theater, and Looking Glass Theater. He received an MFA in direction from Northwestern University, is a member of the Lincoln Center Directors Lab in 2012, an artistic associate of Black Lives, Black Words, and a Henson Foundation sponsored participant at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center National Puppetry Conference in 2020. Jarrell, it is so wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Rob. It's really, really great to be here. Jarrell, first question for you, and, and if you can summarize this, although your chapter does it brilliantly, why is Shuffle Along a key musical? Why is this included in this book? Because Shuffle Along helped rewrite the formula for what American musical theater would become. Uh, you know, musical theater, for, for those of us who um, have studied it, we know that musical theater is an amalgamation of, you know, various forms of pop culture that came from what I would refer to personally as the old world. You have opera, you have uh, uh, elements of burlesque, uh, however, uh, uh, chamber music. You also, though, have elements of that great American uh popular form of entertainment called minstrelsy. And, and so when, when you look at the musicals that came, the, the Broadway level musicals that came before Shuffle Along and you know, there's the argument of, well, they technically weren't on Broadway, but we know that for all intents and purposes, William and Walker, you know, Cole and Johnson, you know, shows were Broadway level. Uh, when you look at those shows, the makeup of those shows, the I guess it is it is it's very clear that those musicals are still more connected to the era of minstrelsy that came before it than the era of the jazz musical that would come after it. And I think that's the difference between uh, the generation of Williams and Walker and the generation that Williams and Walker inspired, which is Judy Blake and Noble Sissel and their, their folks you know, in the 1920s. It's that element of jazz um, that moves it just beyond you know, the, the blackface routine that Aubrey Lyles and Flournoy Miller were performing. And it puts it in line for the reviews that you're going to see in the 1920s and 1930s. You got the Lou Leslie reviews coming out, you know, all the, the you know, and the 
the chocolate dandies and, and all those kind of shows. From those shows, you would uh, begin to get music that's developed by Andy Razoff and Fats Waller and folks like that. And their music, um, as we know now in the early 21st century, their music actually pushes us to the end of the 20th century as does the music of UB Blake, because you start to see those review shows coming out in the 1970s that are actually a callback to the 1930s. But you understand that that callback, I mean, you're only able to have that callback because you have the original. And the further you get from minstrelsy, the less overtly minstrel it becomes. But that element, that jazz flavor never really goes away. Um, and so the fact that Shuffle Along is the first jazz musical, that it popular, popularized the form, that it, it wasn't just a Broadway show, it was also a pop culture phenomenon that would spur songs that would influence presidential elections and popular television towards the end of the 20th century. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. uh, the, the Warner Brother cartoons and the Muppet show. I forgot that um, <laughs> uh, they sing I'm Just Wild About Harry on the Muppet show in the 19th <laughs> And that's amazing. <laughs> so, so one of the reasons why, when you think about the groundbreaking musicals that have changed American culture, right? And that's the hard call to make. When you think of the showboats, I'm not a huge fan of showboat, but you can't deny <laughs> after showboat, musical theater was different than before it. I'm not a huge fan of hair, but yep. you can't deny bringing rock to that level on stage, rock had been played around with before, but hair took it to another level. It wasn't bye-bye birdie. It wasn't cute. It wasn't supposed to be about family. It was dangerous. And it was talking about things that people did not want to talk about. A chorus line, The Wiz. These are all shows, uh, Hamilton, you know what I mean? These are all shows that have, that have changed the culture. And when you think about the fact that Shuffle Along, and this is a long answer, <laughs> you think about the fact that Shuffle Along came out in uh, 1921, and there was a review version of its history performed in 2016. That tells you everything you need to know mm. about how influential that, that show is and deserves to be. One of the questions that we ask our authors, and I was so excited uh, when when we approached you with this title, which is, you know, why did you want to codify the history of Shuffle Along? You could have picked any show, but this is the one that you found the most interesting. Why did you choose this chapter to write about? Because I am always in search of the voices of my ancestors and those who came before me. It's really that simple. It's a very selfish reason. I want to know more about the show. And I knew a fair amount. Um, as you know, I, I started collecting um, Black, uh, African-American and African, um, African diaspora musical theater vinyl albums. And so one of those albums was the Shuffle Along soundtrack. And of course they didn't put out a Broadway soundtrack, but those artists did record those songs around the time they put the show out. And those recordings were compiled into what we would now call a soundtrack. And so when you listen to, you know, when I'm trying to figure out which direction I'm gonna go in or when I wanna meditate, cause I use the music, it helps me think and it helps me kind of figure out what direction to go in. Um, the more I know about the journey of the artists personally, the journey of the artists who went through the who went through this artistic process before, you know, they had to figure out how to produce a musical without money and without people lining up to back them. And this was, you know, a hundred years before now, literally a hundred years before now. You know, when I'm thinking about how to move forward you know, their voices and their stories call to me and feed me in a way that helps me understand what way I want to go. And I kind of figured that if I felt that way, I couldn't be the only one who felt that way. And or it could be a way to show someone else uh, a way to connect deeper with themselves. Here's something you never knew about American musical theater that is fundamentally important to know 
if you love American musical theater. Jarrell, when you were doing your research, what was one thing that you came upon that shocked even you that you said, oh my God, I had no idea about this? My favorite story is the fact that, and, and it's a, another part of the history of, of how great the show is, uh, the fact that Langston Hughes, who was a college student, the great poet known for, you know, his poems that came out during the uh, Harlem Renaissance, when he was figuring out what college he was going to go to, he went to Columbia University in New York. And he said that that was because he wanted to go see Shuffle Along whenever he wanted to go see it. That show is one of the reasons why he moved to New York and he became um, a, a very huge cultural figure in the city of New York. <laughs> he's there because he's soaking up those beautiful Black and African-American and African diasporic influences. And when you look at the career trajectory, the theater trajectory of Langston Hughes, because a lot of folks only know him as a poet, and a short story writer and a, and a novel writer, but he was... Uh, he was a uh, librettist uh, and had uh, a few of, of, uh, of his plays or his works ended up on Broadway in various shows. Um, when you look at his trajectory of the kind of theater that he would create, which was centered in African-American traditions, as was Shuffle Along. So Shuffle Along inspires Langston Hughes. Langston Hughes begins uh, writing plays and musicals that would then inspire the next generation. When you look at uh, Jericho Jim Crow, which, which is a Langston Hughes play that was in the 1960s, it was co-directed by Alvin Ailey and William Harrison, starred Mickey Grant, the recently late great Mickey oh. Grant, Joseph Adels, who was a, you know, was a callback performer from the 1930s. When you look at the fact that Jericho Jim Crow, this play about the 1960s, that has Mickey Grant in it, you know, Langston Hughes connecting back to the 20s connects to Mickey Grant. Mickey Grant goes out, connects with Vinette Carroll. And in the 1970s, you start to see musicals like Your Arms Too Short to Box with God. You start to see musicals like Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope. You start to hear music in uh, musicals like Working that talk about what it's like to be a cleaning woman and what it's like to be a mechanic and what it's like to live in these, what you might call traditional African-American spaces our experience, and that extends to someone like me, who then wants to take that into the 21st century. I mean, the joy that that show produced and the interest that it generates to make those of us who have that hunger dive deeper into that history as a connection to ourselves to make the world a better place. Oh. On Langston Hughes, right there. <laughs> oh, that is that is so incredible. And when reading your chapter, I read that, and I just I I had such yeah. a huge smile on my face to know that a musical is what helped keep one of America's greatest poets in New York City. In New York and, City, and I love that yeah. so much. Now, a question for you, because uh, you know our book doesn't cover things like Indahomey or Abyssinia, which is you know the Williamson Walker thing. Can you tell me a little bit if uh, when they were creating Shuffle Along, was there a clear decision made not to embrace some of the minstrel show type elements that Williams and Walkers had at the early part of the 20th century? Or was that not even something to be considered when they were crafting Shuffle Along? Because it seems like there's a pretty th a thick dividing line between the work of Williams and Walker and something like Shuffle Along. Thank you for asking that question. I, I would argue, and this is historical perspective, you know, um, that you have to remember that Williams and Walker, Cole and Johnson, you know, um, J. Roseman Johnson and James Weldon Johnson, uh, Ernest Hogan, uh, Ada Overton Walker, George Walker's wife, they were the direct influences. They were direct influences on UB Blake. And U.B. Blake would often, and, and all of them, I mean, Fleur Miller, Aubrey Lowes, U.B. Blake, because he just lived the longest, would often credit them and their musicals. When people would say that Shuffle Along was the first Black musical, U.B. Blake would correct them mm. and no. So I don't know if there was that kind of awareness when they were developing Shuffle Along. I think that once Shuffle Along hit and once some of the, you know, the other shows that would come after hit, 
once you start getting about 10 plus years after Shuffle Along, the culture really does begin to change, especially within the African-American community in terms of what we're willing to accept and what we're not willing to accept. It was still easier to accept that in 1920, 1921. And that was Flournoy Miller and Aubrey Lowes' bread and butter, because you have to remember that that was the way that if, if you were making it on major circuits, to some extent, you were doing blackface, period. Um, so I don't know if there was that particular divide. Mm-hmm. One, because of the time period that they existed in and how acceptable blackface still was. The jazz singer film with Al Jolson is, uh, is around that era. I think it might be a little bit later. Um, I forget the exact date of that film. Um, 20, 27 or 28? Yeah, it's it's somewhere around there. And he's still wearing blackface and being celebrated in that. Um, and also you have to remember that they were big influences. Burt Williams was a huge, I mean, it's like, it's just like asking, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, Josh Henry, if, you know, was, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, was uh, Andre DeShields or Ken Page or Gregory Hines, you know, someone who's not, not like Paul Robeson, who's so old, that you would respect and revere, but someone from a few a generation or two before them, you know what I mean? Would you would you still be influenced by them? It's like, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. To a large extent, at least in my case, that's what I listen to to discover musical theater. So it's in the water; you can't escape from it. Why do you think something like Shuffle Along is still with? us today in terms of musical theater, but something like Indahomey or Abyssinia sort of has fallen under a footnote in a lot of musical theater history books. Shuffle Along to a large extent has been uh, blessed by the fact that people, enough people have remembered it who have sway in American pop musical theater, popular culture, that it has never completely died away to the same extent that the Williams and Walker works have. Within the African-American musical theater community and within the musical theater community at large, for those of us who are really into it, we know about Abyssinia, we know about Sons of Ham. Um, But to a large extent, if you're, let's say, I don't want to say a casual listener because that sounds arrogant, but if you're someone who I guess is as deep into the history of it, but you like it, you seeing it, um, you might miss that. But Shuffle Along would be hard to miss because if you follow the, you know, if, hmm, I don't know, I guess, I think the fact that you had you know, Shuffle Along came back in the 1950s. Like, it didn't work, but it came back in the 1950s. Shuffle Along in and of itself didn't come back in the 1970s, but Yubi did, and by celebrating Yubi, you were celebrating Shuffle Along. Yeah. And the fact that George C. Wolf, who, you know, is now one of the godfathers of American theater period, but definitely African-American musical theater, the fact that he came along in the early 21st century and was like, I'm going to tell you a story that you are not going to, be- that you have never heard, you're not going to believe. And there were enough contemporary people who hadn't heard about it and enough contemporary folks who were like, oh my God, yes. <sighs> you can build off of it. And again, the music lends itself to joy and creative expression. I saw the, I saw the show in 2016 on Broadway. Okay. <laughs> And wouldn't it be nice if there was a if there was a cast recording for those of us that were unable to see it? Why are you asking me this? Why are you trying to get me into trouble, Rob? I'm like, not. I'm not. I'm just why are you saying, asking me this. Would, it would just, it would just yes, be nice. It is, it is one of my deep, deep annoyances that push me to some extent to be as vocal as I am about. Um, valuing African-American performers and African-American bodies, because to me, it was a great insult to produce that play. But when, you know, when, when everything didn't line up the way that one person, one person wanted it to line up, it was like, everybody just go home. Here's a check, go home. Uh, Yeah, I'll take my toys and go, go away now. Yeah. So Um, that, I saw the show, so that'll live forever in my head. But those cast albums, that's how things live. That's how things move from generation to generation. 
I discovered Shuffle Along because I could hear the music that they were allowed to record. And the same thing with Yubi and the same thing with all of these other African-American shows that I'm collecting right now. So when you put something into the water, when you either deny, it's just, it's a lesser, it's a lesser death. That's, that's all the, that's all that happened. It wasn't, we're not going to produce it, which is like, the biggest form of disrespect. It's not worthy of being seen, but the fact that it's worthy of being received, but it, of, of being seen, but it isn't worthy of being uh, cataloged. Mm. And there's no, there's no record. So it lives in the world of oral tradition. Somebody has to tell you about Savion Glover's tap dance because you can't hear it. Somebody has to tell you about how amazing it was to watch Audrey McDonald be eight and a half to nine months pregnant singing amazingly <laughs> and doing high kicks and Josh Henry and, and Brian Stokes Mitchell and Billy Porter. You know, these human beings who are literally living the dream and the reality that the folks that they're playing were trying to create a hundred years ago. And we don't have anything besides our memories and some photos to look back on. And to me, for the amount of money that lives in the American theater production industry, for there to be no catalog of that brilliance, that's a crime. A taste uh, of money is worse than none at all. It's, and with I, history. I agree with playing you. with history. 110%. playing with uh, American history. It's it it's a, it's an absolute shame. I'm going to be honest with you. When they announced the production, I assumed I said, "Oh, this will be great because they'll capture it on film, so that way there'll be a record of it." And to go from that idea of what I think is going to happen all the way to like you were saying, it's offensive that they didn't even you know there's no where you don't have money for this. Yeah. No, no, there's no money out of all the fuck. Excuse me, out of all the money that we. <laughs> Out of all the money that we spend on things and nobody can find money for this. Okay. That's right. To record that music. Um, and it's, it's one of the great sadnesses that I, I, if I have anything to do about it, it will never happen again. Great. You know, I have a lot of power, a lot of say, but that's one of the things I'm going to work towards. Um, Cause sure. the, if we don't, there's so much of mu African-American musical, there's so much of African-American history that gets lost uh, so with at least in the realm of American musical theater, man, that's politics, that's social mores, that's generational expectations, that's seeing the evolution of African-American uh, uh, male misogyny and homophobia, you know, to, to, to go from, you know, guys and dolls in the 1970s to a strange loop in the early 21st century and how narratives about love and who's worthy of love get to be told. Mm. It moves out of the realm of putting African-American narratives on top of, you know, white narratives to creating narratives of our own based on what we go through. It's not that we can't get anything from guys and dolls. Of course we can. Guys and dolls has something from everyone. Yeah. But it doesn't hit the same way that, you know, the the bubbly brown girl sheds her chameleon skin. You know what I mean? I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And, you know, you, you said something so interesting, which I'd like to ask you about, which is you said, you know, the idea of who gets to fall in love and how those love stories are told. Can we talk a little bit about love will find a way? 
Yes. Uh, would you be so kind as to tell our listeners exactly what is Love Will Find a Way and why it's significant? Love will find a way. Such a good song. It sounds so good. <laughs> yeah, it's such a good song. Oh, oh, oh okay. I'll, I'll get distracted by my own storytelling. So <laughs> Love Will Find a Way. <laughs> love Will Find a Way is the major love song between the two uh, young lovers, uh, characters in Shuffle Along. Uh, Harry being the gentleman who's running for mayor. He's one of the three main stories um, of the of the musical. And so, again, it was often believed that there had never been uh, a, a showing of African-American love on stage that wasn't comedic. Um, and that's not 100% true. Uh, like they, you know, during the Williams and Walker era, specifically between George Walker and his wife, Ada Overton Walker, there were love narratives. It was always, it, it did, they, these, these musicals were comedies, uh, but none of us were there. So I had to say that they were just based in comedy. I was like, I don't know if that's necessarily true. And to me, the images of George Walker holding his wife's hand while they dance on stage, to me, even if that's being done in a comedic context, that's still showing genuine love between a Black man and a Black woman. However, when you read, uh, you know, uh, the UB Blake autobiography or reminiscing with Sister Slim Blake, which is where a lot of the information about this show comes from, thank God, UB Blake slipped Along. And Noble Sissel, because Noble Sissel lived, lived a while as well. Um, from the stories that they tell about, you know, the previews of Love Will Find a Way, you definitely get the idea that it wasn't a given that this, you know, love ballad from a Black man to a Black woman was going to fly. And basically it was the idea of, um, you know, a lot of, there was a lot of money to be made and a lot of social and political capital to be gained by the idea that African-Americans were not full human beings. Um, I mean, all you have to do is look at minstrelsy and how popular that was for as long as it was popular. Minstrelsy was popular for a long time. Um, so when you look at that, you understand that um, there was a lot to be gained from dehumanizing Black people. And one of the ways that you dehumanize people is by saying that they're not capable of love. It was one of the arguments that were that was made for separating families during slavery. They don't feel love the way that we feel love. So it's okay to take their children away from them because it won't affect them the same way. Um, and so when you... Uh, and so when you push against those really strong national narratives, you know what I mean? And oftentimes unspoken narratives, you might be in for some real pushback. You know, racist America doesn't like it when you prove it wrong. <laughs> and racist America doesn't like it when you try to change that narrative, especially if you're one of the people of, of color that's being oppressed. So you have the story of, you know, things like Noble Sissel and Aubrey Lyles with their feet in the stage door because they were afraid that when that song played, there was going to be a riot. That was a real worry. And you got to remember, there were still race riots going on. And just because they were in New York, there were race riots in New York. So it was possible for a love song to trigger massive violence and death. And if the cops showed up, they weren't arresting the white people who were tearing up shit, arresting the black performers. So you have this story of them with their feet in the stage door, like, all right, like, if, if this pops off, we out. What about Yubi? He gonna have to fend for himself. <laughs> so, like, literally, they were gonna, like, like, we out. And Yubi Blake is in the orchestra pit, like, playing, like, trying to be cool, beginning to play this song. Like, what is gonna happen? And so when the song becomes a hit, when reviewers start to write about it, the beauty of the melody, and it is a beautiful melody, um, you know, the beauty of the word, the poetry, the poetic language that's being used. And it is poetic language. Everybody takes a collective sigh of relief. In the 1920s, African-Americans, America has decided that it is okay if African-Americans have substantial love stories on stage. 
okay. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it's now a thing that we have written that white America will accept that. And so they really did push the envelope, even though they may not have been the first to do it. They definitely took it to another level and love will find a way became, um, the the second most famous song after I'm just wild about Harry and you know if you listen to it today it's a beautiful song and it's reminiscent of the time period in which it was written um which is great because people don't write music that way anymore and that's not an argument to say that they should but isn't it really great to hear where you know when you listen to the great love songs today the first song that came to mind was um play the music for me from Jelly's last jam you know what I mean? Yeah. When you listen to songs that have come out in the last, let's say, 30 or so years, the DNA of those songs lives inside of Love Will Find a Way. The You know, with the last chance blues from the end of Jelly, you know, these two characters in love singing about their the love they have for each other, but their inability to show it. Mm. The DNA for that song definitely comes out of Love Will Find a Way. And it's just cool to be able to track that. Again, that's the beauty of having an original Broadway soundtrack. You can you can see where you've been and imagine where you might go. Wow. And you know, because so many musical theater history books for so long were focused, written by white men through that white lens, so many names from the African-American musical theater community has have just sort of disappeared. And one of the things that I really love about your chapter is it brings these names back into the narrative again. Oh, yeah. And there were some names, uh, full disclosure, when I read and I said, I've never heard of this individual before, but was fascinated. Can you tell me a little bit about James Reese Europe? <gasps> yes, I can. <laughs> James Reese Europe was a band leader in the early 20th century. He was an African-American band leader. He was a, a physical bear of a man. He was a you know big, large, barrel-chested man with these really serious, like, steel glasses from that era. And he was known for being fair. He was known for being decent. And he was known for what you would call, he was a race man. So his goal in life was to elevate the culture. And that's what we were going to do. And everything we were going to do were, was going to elevate Black culture. And he was a big proponent of, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not trying to write like John Philip Sousa. I'm not trying to write like Irving Berlin. That's not what I do. And why, and I don't understand, and he would say, you know, I don't understand why Black people, we shouldn't try to write like white people. We should try to write like ourselves because nobody can do it the way that we can do it. So he had mad pride <laughs> in himself and his culture and in and where he came from. You know, he knew the genius that he had inside of him. And he looked at those, those around him and saw that same genius in them. And it was James Reese Europe who planted the idea of having an all Negro musical on Broadway, because you have to remember the love affair with the with African American uh, folks in America. Uh, it, it's fluid. It comes and goes. And so there are decades in which the so-called the Negro is in vogue. You know what I mean? And then there are decades where it's just like, yeah, you, you, you look at like, hallelujah, baby. <laughs> dream girls and it's yeah. like black artists are awesome <laughs> then like there's tap dance kid <laughs> 80s but after tap dance kid it it's kind of until like once on this island in the early 90s that you start seeing african-american themed musicals again so it, it comes and goes and so james reshore uh you know when when they were talking about it it was in the law you had had the era of Williams and Walker and Ernest Hogan and those folks in the late 1800s going into the early 1900s, but that era had kind of petered out. And the era of Shuffle Along in the early 1920s hadn't fully popped off yet. There's still Black musical theater happening, but it's not happening at that level. And so uh, Jim, Jim Europe, who fought in World War I with Noble Sissel, they were... They were friends, they were army brothers, they were musical brothers. You know, Europe was their mentor. 
Europe was, you know, it, it, the only way I can liken it now is if like the way that I kind of see Billy Porter, mm. you know, Billy Porter was was fortunate enough to, to live past all that ish that his younger generation had to deal with coming up in the late 80s, early 90s and like AIDS and, you know, Reagan and the first Bush and all that craziness. So because he he was there to see a lot of that he can now be a mentor to those of the younger generation while he also lives his best life now. Um, and so that's kind of how I like, it's not exactly the same, but it's kind of how I see Jim Reese Europe in terms of, he was the one that was like living and paying attention so that when these other cats came along, he's like, why are you over there? Come on over here. We're going to create some shit together. And he is uh, killed. Sorry, just one quickly. He was killed by a band member uh may of 1919 if i'm not mistaken uh and it was an argument that got out of control and the guy got a good cut he, he cut him on his neck and it was like the right cut and it didn't seem that bad and the next morning he was gone and honestly the the musical would have been created anyway but it's interesting that shuffle along wouldn't have been shuffle along if he had lived shuffle along became shuffle along because jim europe died and then Cicel and Blake were like, we got to do something about this. And then it became their energy. And it was their, it was their musical energy, which was rooted in jazz, plus the energy of Aubrey Lyles and Flournoy Miller that was rooted in like hardcore vaudeville comedy. That four link chain that created the musical. And had he lived, how do you think Shuffle Along would have sounded? Um... That's an interesting point because he and I mean, Blake was influenced by him. So I think it would have been it still would have been a jazz musical. It just would have been different jazz mm. because these were the Harlem Hellfighters. These these were the folks who were playing their version of music all over Europe while they were there. And when they came back to Harlem with like a ticker tape parade marching, strutting, you know, playing their playing their playing their music. So I think it would have been, it would have still been similar. It just wouldn't have been exactly the same. And, you know, you had mentioned this before we went on the air. And one of the things I think that one of the people that we remember so much from Shuffle Along is UB Blake, just simply because he had such a long life, whether he was 100 or 95, we're still trying to yeah. figure that out. But because, because he was around for so long, he sort of became the person that we identify the most with the show, but there are all these other individuals that helped shape this show to be a key musical that either died young or, or just sort of disappeared from the history books. And one of the great things about your chapter, it, like I said, is you bring these people back. And one person I was so uh, interested by was uh, Florence Mills. Mm. Can, yeah. can, can you tell me a little bit about her and what she contributed to this event? songbird she was she was a replacement performer sutton foster is the white <laughs> great Lawrence mills she was a replacement performer and she so defined the role that it became hers that's who she was she became an international sensation by redefining a role that had been introduced by another performer celebrated they were both celebrated performances so you know so that's who she was she was an international influence and one of the reasons why um her her memory is so mythic is because she died so young uh she was sick uh i forget the exact illness that took her out but um yeah she was performing in in london and, and you know so it's Fourth, yeah. In some ways, it's like a Marilyn Monroe type thing, which is because they left the world so young, there's this mythical idea about them. Is that correct? Duke Ellington wrote a song about her. Wow. You know, and there's no known copy of her singing. I was just going to ask. So we so whatever there was special about her, it's going to be in the people's memories that got to see her. It lives in wow. the so that Duke Ellington song, it lives in the words of UB Blake and uh, Noble Sisu who had who spoke about her, you know, what I mean, and the various other performers who were performing at the same time and who are her contemporaries. So they were influenced by her. You're talking at the waters. You know what I mean? 
you're talking Avon Long. You're talking about people who would have seen her perform and would have remembered that uh, 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 Elizabeth Welch. Oh, wow. Was an, another performer who would go to uh, London, you know, and live her best life. So you hear it. It's what I was just listening. I have a couple Elizabeth Welch albums, um, both in shows and, and uh, you know, solo, solo and and to listen to her you know that you're hearing the way that music was communicated at the beginning of the 20th century because it lives through what whatever you know florence mills might be doing we might be seeing elements or hearing elements that's absolutely correct she would have known they would have been aware of each other wow so we, we can listen to Elizabeth Welch. We can listen to Ethel Waters and get some sort of idea. Of get some, some of sort of idea of how she would have performed knowing that. Or Josephine Baker. Ah, okay. Listen to Josephine Baker because they would have known each other. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, um, they would have been aware. And so she, of course, would have put her own spin on it. But that's the, that's the idea of how musical theater was was sung at that time, you know? Now, you had mentioned that there was uh, a revival of Shuffle Along in the 1950s that was not very successful. Is there a reason why it did not click with audiences in the 1950s? For, for, it, it seems from what I've been able to read for all the obvious reasons. Um, one, the script, the script of Shuffle Along was never, <laughs> was not a script in terms of how we think of script today. Mm-hmm. but the actors knew what they were doing with what they had because it was their creation. So it's kind of like, I imagine it when I read the script that, that I, the published script that's left, when I read it, it's, it kind of reads to me like, it's like when you, if you're writing a recipe, but you write a recipe for somebody who already knows the recipe, God. there's a lot that you leave out because the person knows it. So if you pick that up and try to make something of it and you're not from that culture, because this was the, um, I forget the exact year, I think it was 56, but uh, don't quote me on that. Um, But Pearl Bailey was invited to be the lead. And Pearl was like, shuffle along. Yeah, sure. I'd love to be in a revival of shuffle along. And the producers who are predominantly white move, you know, push Cecil and Blake further and further out and further and further away. Uh, and it becomes less their thing. And, you know, these white producers, I think they make it into like the story of a guy at, in, in, at, in World War II or something or coming home from the war or something like that. And the script is a mess. So I think that that's one of the things. If you're going to do got it. <laughs> Shuffle Along, you got if you're going to produce Shuffle Along, you got to be the kind of producer that understands that if you don't know what you're doing, you really need to bring in the people who do and stay the fuck out of the way. Yeah. It's similar to how I see The Wiz, because The Wiz is also a very, it's, you know, a very, when I read the script of The Wiz, it reads like an insider recipe. And there's uh, a lot of people who don't get that script because the slang throws them off. And I'm like, you know, that if they, they just wrote this because that was the way that people were speaking today. So if you want to produce The Wiz, just have them speak the way that people are speaking today. You know, like, yeah, exactly. like it's not, you don't need to have Eveline calling somebody a job. Like, come on. Like they, they, it wasn't written to be like held on like that. It was written to breathe and to let the actors make of it what they will, because that's what black performers had to do for so long. It's one of the things that you hear when you read Alice Childress's Trouble in Mind, the play that's about to come back on Broadway with the great LaShawns. And at the beginning of it, she's telling the young Black person, you know, Trouble in Mind takes place in the late 1950s. And we see the generational divide of actors who worked during the 1920s and young actors coming up who are learning the method in the 1950s and how to be rooted in yourself and psychological things. And, um, you know, the 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 lead actress is like, I don't put that much thought into this because I know what they want. I know what they want. I know what they're looking for. So I'm just going to give them that. And I don't think about it. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. What? Got it. Got it. Can, we, and, way, yeah. and the last, the last team I want to ask you about is Miller and Lyles who 
don't get mentioned as much as UB Blake and Noble Sissel. What information did you discover about uh, these two individuals, Miller and Lyles? Yeah, there's a great book called Footlights that came out or that I, I discovered um, just as I was actually wrapping up <laughs> this chapter. And it was like, no, oh! <laughs> well, always the way. Um, always the way. I was like, golly, what a great book, because um, the literature that I was using did primarily focus on uh, Cecil and Blake. But Footlights spends time with Miller and Lyles in a way that none of the other uh, books or references I was able to find really did. And so to understand that they met at Fisk University, they were college friends. So think about all of the great musical theater that we have seen that have come from people who just connected in college. I think of Town. I think of, of course, uh, Hamilton and In the Heights and, and those folks. You know what I mean? Um, so they were buddies. They met at Fisk and they wanted to perform. And, you know, especially at the time when they were young men, we're talking, again, late 1800s going into early 1900s. You know, it was all about how you bring respectability to your race. And so uh, theater was not seen as a respectable living. Uh, however, they created a piece in college that was so successful, it started paying for shit around campus. <laughs> they started bringing in money. And once they started bringing in money, uh, theater didn't seem so bad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to the folks who were, you know, running things. They go on the road, you know, and, and Footlights does a really great job. Oh, this book, I, I wish I remembered the author right now, but his name, their, their name escapes me. We'll put a link to the book in uh, oh, the great, description. Oh, great, great, great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the book is really clear about telling you how dangerous it was for them to pursue their dream. Like in the 21st century, you know, it's 2021. It's like, oh yeah, these two kids met in college and they were writing shows and then they went on the road. But they were living in the early 1900s and they were two black young men on the road. Think of the Scottsboro boys. Think of all of the black people who have died because white people have lied or had their feelings hurt a little. And the only thing that would make them feel better in that moment is for that black person who made them feel uncomfortable for a second to be murdered in the most extreme way. <laughs> like. So the book points that out. And that was something that they were aware of. They really had to watch their backs and they had to watch each other's backs because anything could pop off at any time. So I really appreciated the book for that. Them going to Chicago, them kind of finding the theater culture and society culture in Chicago and finding people who are willing to invest in them. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking for that message, you know, uh, there's no way that, you know, forget about me. I'm I'm already old with a career, but someone else coming up today, someone else coming up today trying to figure out what shuffle along and these, you know, men and women who live so long ago has to offer them. One of the great lessons that travels through time is the fact of like finding your community, finding the community that works for you, finding people who are going to support you. All of these folks whether it was the society in Chicago or Jim Reese Europe or somebody else found a group of people who were willing to bet on them and help develop them. And that's where they stayed and lived until they were, they had enough to do their own. Or you even look at Josephine Baker, who was not cast the first time she showed up. She showed up when she was 14 years old in DC and I, interestingly enough, or, or horribly enough, the reason why she wasn't cat, you know, Sissel looked at her, he was a colorist, you know? So Sissel looks at her and goes, too young, too dark, next. He sees her a year later, she performs incredibly, or a couple years later, she performs incredibly and his response, she go, he goes, do you know why I didn't hire you? And she looks at him and goes, yeah, you said I was too young and too dark. And he's like, no, 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 you are too experienced. And she's like, yeah, whatever, am I in the show? You know, because that. So in, so in Josephine Baker's uh, uh, situation, it was an atmosphere that didn't immediately welcome her, but she knew what she wanted. She knew what she wanted in this world, and they were the keys to getting that. And no matter how long it took, no matter what it took, she was going to be in that show. When she got in that show, she did everything she could to her co 
performer's chagrin <laughs> to get attention and to push herself into the spotlight because she knew what she wanted. And once the men at the top realized what she had to offer once she was in the show, they started marketing that. They helped put in. Oof. Yeah. I, I mean, once again, you know, uh, the chapter that you wrote is absolutely fantastic. Um, we will put a link to all of the things that Professor Henderson has talked about today in our show description, including his Instagram. Uh, would the name of the Instagram one more time, please? Black Theater Vinyl Archive. Which is such a wonderful resource. Professor Henderson, thank you so much for joining us today. We could go on forever and ever. Uh, folks, please make sure to purchase a copy of 50 Key Stage Musicals by visiting Routledge.com or by clicking in today's show description. If you want to learn more about Shuffle Along, please also review the links in the below description. I'm Robert Schneider, and thank you so much for listening to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast. Goodbye. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.